Scripture reading this morning comes from Luke 11, Luke 11, 1 through 4. Luke 11, 1 through 4, and I will be reading from the New American Standard Bible. It reads, It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John has also taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, for we also also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. I have referenced on more than one occasion the fact that my father was a gospel preacher. What I haven't told everyone is that he was not always a full-time gospel preacher. At least while I was growing up, until I left for school, my dad was a bivocational preacher. He, he made his living and supported us, put food on the table and paid the bills by being a, a plumber and an electrician and a builder. He was a contractor in those areas. And so I'm saying that to tell you that I worked with my father enough to learn some things about those various trades. I think Mia will tell you that over the course of our married life, I have uh, done some jobs for us in terms of electricity and plumbing and even building that uh, has saved us quite a bit of money. There are other times that I would prefer her not to tell you about (laughs) when I have cost us quite a bit of money. I've often said I know enough about electricity to be dangerous, but I can distinctly remember learning some things from my father about, about his trade. And especially in terms of building and measurements. I, I learned such pearls of wisdom like measure twice, cut once. I think every carpenter knows that rule. And I can also remember the occasions when my father or maybe his business partner failed to do that. And he would say things like, well, Rando, I cut it off twice and it's still too short. <laughs> Two, three, four. So I learned some things about that. But mainly I've learned from reading scripture that distance is not always measured physically. We know that's true in relationships. Sometimes when marriages are troubled, we say that the distance between them is growing. Or maybe we've just uh, lost touch with a friend over the course of time since graduation or whatever, and we say that our, our relationship has grown more distant. We're not talking about the miles between us. We're talking about a psychological and emotional phenomenon that all of us have experienced. So distance really is a subject of science and transportation and communication. We use it to measure how far people, continents, and planets are from each other, and most of the time it is, in fact, a physical measurement, but not all of the time. There's a measurement that's, that's a different way to, uh, to consider distance. There are social economic distances, there are moral and political distances, there are racial and religious distances, and there's even what we just talked about, emotional and psychological distances. In fact, we well know, if you're a citizen of planet Earth, you're very much aware of the fact that one small area of a city can contain both wealth and poverty, it can have both education and ignorance, it can have security and fear. All of those things can be confined even in a single neighborhood. And though the physical distance separating people is small, the social, emotional, and spiritual distance can sometimes seem to be overwhelming. It's often been said that our world is shrinking. 
But as the world shrinks, the distance between people, it seems, just grows larger. Individuals can live in the same house and yet never speak to one another. I don't think that anyone would say that those people are are close in any kind of relational sense. They can live in the same neighborhood, and yet they can still be afraid of one another. And so on one level, we measure distances in, in units of miles and maybe hours. In deeper dimensions, though, in spiritual dimensions the, that I want us to consider this morning, we, we measure it in, in poverty levels, stress factors, and sometimes even personality profiles. There's even a, a deeper dimension in human life, one more profound distance that we can measure. It's the distance between right and wrong, between loyalty and betrayal, between integrity and hypocrisy. And I'll guarantee you, anytime you open God's book, usually you're looking at distances being described in relation to those particular things. Physical measurements are going to pass away, but the distance between right and wrong is timeless in nature. God has said so in his word. And that eternal dimension isn't measured by hours or by miles. In Mark 7 and verse 6, the Bible says, This people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Again, he's not talking about physical measurement there. He's talking about a spiritual distance. While they're saying one thing with their lips, their heart is not involved in that at all. They are far from God in terms of where the rubber hits the road and the practical dimensions of their spiritual relationship. So Jesus showed that that spiritual distance, and and I want us to think about this for a few minutes together this morning. That kind of distance can be measured in units of prayer. In this series on follow Jesus or turn your eyes upon Jesus that we've been considering this year. I've talked about a number of different relationships and aspects of Jesus' life. We talked about follow me, uh, listen to me, crowd me, interrupt me, and a number of other dimensions, and looked at Jesus' life and his work and his ministry through various windows of illustration. This morning, I think that uh, I I can say without any fear of being... uh, anyone arguing with me about this, is, is that one aspect of Jesus' life that you absolutely have to consider is the fact that Jesus was a man of prayer. That Jesus' life really is a, a study of the power of prayer. And that's why we chose Luke chapter 11, 1 and following as our text this morning. I've said a number of times from this pulpit that Jesus' disciples at least in terms of the biblical record, never, never once came to Jesus and said, Lord, teach us to preach the way you preach. But they did say, they made this request, Lord, we really would like for you to teach us how to pray, even as John taught his disciples. That's Luke 11 and verse 1, of course. So when they saw the power in Jesus' life, they saw it not so much in his preaching, but in his praying. Consider with me this morning the fact that we're missing an important and vital dimension in our spiritual lives if we've not discovered and then tapped into the power of prayer. Let me say that again. We're missing something if we're not tapping into the power of prayer. Are you a prayer warrior this morning? Are you learning how to pray? And by the way, our text implies that it is a learned thing. If the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray, that means that that is something that you can gain instruction from and about. You can learn how to be a better prayer. You can learn things about prayer, its efficacy, its power, and that will also incentivize you to pray more. 
and maybe to pray on a deeper and more meaningful relationship and on a deeper level. A study of the life of Jesus, then, is a study of the power of prayer. So my first point this morning is simply that Jesus was a praying man. We can't spend this whole year talking about Jesus and turning our eyes on Jesus without talking about this important dimension, this this cornerstone in the life of our Lord. He was constantly a praying man. He prayed often. And the gospel accounts record many occasions of prayer. Let me just give you a few. This is a cross section. You could open the concordance and find many, many more. For example, in Luke 3.21, he prayed at his baptism, before choosing his apostles, before breaking the news of his death to his disciples, he prayed about that. Before teaching his disciples how to pray in our text in Luke chapter 11. After the 72 returned with a report of their mission, Jesus prayed about that. Before walking on the sea, he prayed about that, Matthew 14 says. Before raising Lazarus from the dead, at the Passover feast, in the Garden of Gethsemane, and then on the cross. In all of those places, we see snapshots of our Lord. And we see him praying. We, we see him speaking to his heavenly father because that relationship was so important. It was so imperative in his life that he could keep that, that window of communication open between our Lord and the heavenly father. Now, don't, no doubt we could add to the list that I just gave you because John reminds us at the end of his gospel account in John twenty one twenty five that if everything that Jesus said and did was written down, the world itself could, could not contain the books that would be written. So there's a lot of things that Jesus said, and I would suggest a lot of prayers that Jesus prayed that are not recorded in Scripture. But clearly prayer was an important part of his daily life. Leaving heaven was like leaving home. And that distance between where Jesus was as he walked this earth and the throne room of his father was enormous. And and when life became demanding and difficult, prayer was his link back to the father. And the record says in Hebrews 5 or 7, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions, watch this, with loud cries and tears. Our Lord was not dispassionate when he prayed. I mean, he was pouring out his heart before the Father. And that ought to be a lesson to those of us or who are his disciples today. And yet the Gospel of Mark, and that's where I really want us to focus this morning, doesn't mention all the prayers of Jesus either. In fact, it alludes to very few and focus, chooses to focus on only three. So let's do that quickly. Just take a quick survey of the three prayers in the gospel account of Mark that that Mark chooses to focus on. It alludes to, to very few of them, but these are all very important. And among the many times Jesus prayed, why did Mark choose to, to look at and focus our attention on just these three? Well, because each one represents a turning point, a very pivotal moment in the life and ministry of our Lord, a crisis and a progressively more difficult decision that Jesus had to make. So, so had to make. So Mark focused on them to show the struggles in Jesus' life. They can be hallmarked. They can be, you, can, you can drive a peg down and put a flag on each of these prayers because they are central and important to the life of, and ministry of our Lord. He wanted to demonstrate that Jesus had the choice between right and wrong as well. 
He too stood in the gap between loyalty and betrayal, between integrity and hypocrisy. And for him, the distance between a good decision and a bad decision was measured in units of prayer. Let that be a lesson to us. When you have an important decision that needs to be made, do you pray about it? I've been in a number of classes, training sessions, about how to share our faith, the good news of the gospel, with others. But over the course of years, one central lesson stands out. And I don't remember exactly where we lived at the time. And I don't remember who it was that said this. That's some of the things that come with age. But I do remember what he said. Never, ever speak to anyone about their soul without having prayed about it first. Isn't that right? Anytime we open our mouth to speak a word about Jesus, let's pray about it. And I don't mean necessarily pray with that person, but before you, if you go into that relationship and into that encounter with the intention, I'm going to speak to that person, invite them to church, bring up the subject of spirituality, ask where they go to church, whatever it is, pray about it first. If you've got a study set up with someone, don't go study with them without praying fervently about it first. Let's look at these three occasions. Turn first to Mark chapter 1. That's a great place to start, isn't it? Look at verses 35 through 39. Here is the first junction in the life of our Lord where prayer is an important and pivotal point. Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he, that is Jesus, went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and when they found him, they said to him, by the way, small children are not the only ones who exaggerate. Here the apostles are doing it. Everyone is looking for you. Mamas, have you ever heard a kid say, everybody's looking for you. Why are you hiding in the laundry room? I needed some quiet. Thank you. Everybody, Jesus, is looking for you. Verse 38, but he said to them, let us go up into the next towns that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. That is, I've come to bring a message. And he was preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and casting out demons. Now get in mind that he is right now in Galilee. And if he wants to pray at all, he's going to have to do it early in the morning. So beyond any doubt... Galileans at this point consider Jesus to already be a local hero. The word about him was spreading quickly. Everybody, it seems, wanted to know about this Jesus fellow. He was very popular at this point in his ministry. He was a sought-after celebrity, and it's evidenced by a number of scriptural testimonies. The Bible talks about how that people reacted to his message and the, and the methods that he used in getting that message out. Let me give you just a few. Mark 1.22, the people were amazed. So here people are looking at Jesus and they're just enthralled by his message, by the miracles that he's working and everything that he does is, has captivated their attention. The people were all so amazed, chapter 127 of Mark says. The, even the evil spirits obey him, chapter 127. Jesus healed many, chapter 1 in verse 34. So the people are enamored with Jesus at this point in his ministry. But the pace of Jesus' life and his ministry was long and it was exhausting. It began early. It lasted all day. So Jesus had to get up very early in order to have some time alone with his father. He spent his time praying. And when Simon Peter went to search for Jesus, he and his companions 
I think represented the search of, of everyone as it, it is expressed here in the text because everybody really was looking for him. Everyone is looking for you. Mark one thirty seven says. And so the needs were, were so many and so great. And the more people saw what Jesus could do and what he would do and the compassion that he had, the sincere compassion that he had for their physical welfare, but most importantly for their spiritual welfare, the more they wanted to see him, to hear him, and to be in his presence. Jesus could easily, and I hope that you'll drive a, a, a peg down right here, Jesus could have easily stayed in Galilee and spent the rest of his earthly life right there in Galilee. But he didn't. He could have focused his ministry right there. said, I'm not leaving here until we've got everybody signed on as a disciple. And that concern was the essence of this local crisis that we're talking about. Would Jesus remain in Galilee or would he continue his mission? Would he do as he just said, we'll go to the next towns and there we'll preach and we'll bring our message? The Greek word here, by the way, in Mark 1 verse 36, I believe it is, for searched is a, a very interesting one. Again, Simon and those who were with him searched for him. So Jesus had just, you know, he'd sneaked off to pray for a little while uh, without the disciples. Now they're searching for him. And I, I looked up that Greek word. I can't pronounce it, by the way, but it's a, a Greek word that's a very strong one. It, it literally means they hunted down. They tracked down. They're looking for Jesus. And so they're overturning rocks and looking behind every bush. And would Jesus remain in Galilee? Would he continue his mission? All occurrences, by the way, in Mark echo, I think, Satan's attempt to distract or deter or even to destroy Jesus and to change Jesus' picture of what his mission should be. If he could just get Jesus to dial back his mission, then Satan's efforts would have been successful. And so in the time of crisis... The distance between Jesus and the twelve is measured in getting up early and finding time alone with God. For Jesus, prayer was not simply a place to make requests. Let me pause and say, if you forget everything we've talked about this morning, I hope you'll remember this next statement. For Jesus, prayer was not a time just to make requests. It was a time for him to make decisions. I wonder 2,000 years later, for those of us who purport to be followers of Jesus, if we can say the same thing, that a place of prayer is where we make our most important decisions. It's not just a place where you give the Lord your, your Christmas list, all my requests, although there's a place for that, but it's a place where I'm going to pray for the wisdom that comes only from God. I'm going to pray that what I'm about to do is within the framework of God's will, so I'm not just going to make requests, I'm going to make my decisions while I pray. That's what Jesus did. Here's the second major crisis in his life. This one isn't just personal, this one is a national crisis. Mark chapter 6, flip over a few chapters if you will. Mark chapter 6, and we'll start with verse 44. Read three verses. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida. And while he dismissed the crowd, after leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Now, you've got to get some, read a little bit of context before we get to verse 44 to fully appreciate what's taking place here. Because Jesus had earlier sent the twelve out on a mission of healing and teaching. That's verses 7 through 13 of Mark chapter 7, or Mark chapter 6, rather. But when they returned with them, 
They had a large crowd. It wasn't just the disciples. It's 5,000 men that eventually came back to meet up with Jesus after they had been out preaching and teaching and, and doing what the Lord had commissioned them to do. Jesus had instructed the 12 to spend their time preaching repentance and healing. But apparently that wasn't all they had done. Who are these 5,000 that come back with the disciples? Well, John, in John six fifteen reports that the crowd had come back to make Jesus king by force. They had heard all they needed to hear about Jesus, and they're thinking, here's a great political leader who can lead us out from under Roman oppression, can restore power to Jerusalem, can sit on David's throne, and we'll have it made in the shade for the rest of our lives. 5,000 men came with the disciples to see Jesus on this occasion. And this was not just a chance crowd. This was the beginning, folks, of a nationalistic rebellion. Seeing the crowd, perceiving their purpose, the Bible says that Jesus immediately thought of that Old Testament phrase, these people are like sheep without a shepherd. And he was exactly right in that assessment. That pastoral expression, by the way, was one among one that was many times used consistently in the Old Testament to picture the nation of Israel as being without a political leader. In fact, according to Numbers 27, Moses prayed that God would raise up a man to lead the nation of Israel, and I'm quoting now, so that the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. That's Numbers 27 and verse 17 if you want to check it out. But this incident also took place in a solitary place. And the man chosen was, was Joshua, the Hebrew equivalent of Jesus, of course. Jesus did see himself as a shepherd, John ten eleven says. But his style of leadership was clashing with the political expectations of the 12 as, as well as the 5,000 men who had gathered. They wanted to make him a king. Jesus said, that's not what I came here for. So once again, a major decision faced our Lord. Would he give in to the pressure to bring power back to Israel? Would he remain true to his father's mission? Jesus knew that he would not be the kind of military leader that Joshua had been in days past. And so he began, in a sense, to disarm the army, to tell them, that's not what I've come to do. I am not a political leader. If you nominate me for king, I will not run. If I'm elected, I will not serve, that kind of thing. Jesus made it very clear. That while I appreciate the interest and I appreciate the, the approval, that's not my mission. So he dismissed the crowd and Mark 6.45 says he forced the twelve to lead. And the, and the word in the original there is a strong word. He forced them to leave. There in this national crisis, the distance between Jesus and the army of patriots is seen in the fact that their primary interest was in, in eating and fighting. And Jesus just wanted to pray. There's one more crisis that we need to look at that is also hallmarked by prayer in Jesus' life. Turn to Mark 14 and then we'll be through. Mark 14, and I want to begin reading with verse 32. This is a universal crisis. First, there's a personal individual crisis, then there's a national crisis. And the last crisis that Jesus faces, according to Mark's account at least, is, is one that has universal proportions. In the local crisis, Jesus had to decide between two good options. Would he confine his teaching and healing ministry to Galilee, or would he follow a wider mission? And he made his decision in prayer, as we have seen. 
In the national crisis, the choices were clearer, but they were still very difficult. The 5,000 patriots thought that it would be very good for Jesus to become their king. The pressure to satisfy so many people surely had to have been great even in the, minds, uh, in the mind of our Lord. But again, Jesus made his decision in prayer. But here, Jesus found each successive decision more difficult than the previous one. I don't know if you've ever had that experience in your life. You've got a really hard decision to make. And once you make it, there is some sense of relief and you think, okay, now the storm is over. Guess what? The next day, there's a harder decision that has to be made. You think that you've resolved everything by decision number one. But right on the heels comes decision number two that also requires some ruminating, some praying, some agonizing. And then they come in successions. In fact, we sometimes say they come in threes. And that certainly was the case in Jesus' own experience. So a stone's throw away from where Jesus prayed here in this text, the apostles slept. Depression and confusion had drained them. It has a way of doing that. They didn't understand why Jesus constantly rejected every one of their efforts to be a part of their political plans. All we want him to do is sit on David's throne and to restore power to Jerusalem. Their efforts to convince him had only left them frustrated. And Luke twenty-two forty-five says they were exhausted from sorrow. That happens too, doesn't it? If you've ever really grieved, you know that it has a way of draining you. And that was what the apostles were experiencing. What distance lay between Jesus and his sleeping apostles? Well, not far away, there were two more trials that Jesus was going to have to encounter. Jesus would first be taken before the Sanhedrin, and then he would be taken before Pilate. Lies would be told. Fear and panic would overrule truth. They're not really concerned about the facts. We just want to get this Jesus guy out of the way. What was the distance between this legal sham where justice was forgotten and Jesus whose death would satisfy the justice of an eternal God? The distance, I suggest, was again measured in units of prayer. Jesus did here what he had always done. He made his decision while praying. And then he arose, the Bible says, and he woke his disciples, he met his enemies, and he completed his mission. The divine record says in Mark 14, 41 and 42, Jesus told the men there, Enough, the hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. I'm suggesting for your consideration again this morning that for Jesus, prayer was the place to make important and vital decisions. It was a time for him to offer himself as the answer to many of his own prayers. Prayer is still the distance between those who consistently do the will of God and those who don't. And so I wanted to spend some time with you this morning, each of us thinking seriously about the importance of prayer in our own lives. If we're really serious about doing what our theme is for 2019, and that is turning our eyes upon Jesus, we're going to have to seriously consider the place of prayer in our own lives. Are you a praying person? Paul said to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. Again, that just means never let there be a time in your life when you're not a praying person. Prayer needs to be a consistent and regular part of your life. If we're going to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, we too must be people of prayer. Our prayer for you this morning is, if you're not a child of God, 
that you make this the time when you make that decision to turn your back on sin and sincere repentance, confess Jesus as God's son, and allow us to baptize you where you contact his redeeming blood and have every one of your past sins washed away while we stand, while we sing.